Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 101st episode, and we're now up to listeners from 59 countries. And today we have listeners from Australia, Canada, China, England, Ecuador, Guatemala, India, Ireland, Israel, Italy, Kenya, Norway, Portugal, Thailand, and Zimbabwe. Uh, So we welcome all these people from around the world. And today our guest is co-founder of Square Jim McKelvey, author of The Innovation Stack. Jim, welcome. Thank you, Mark. Well, we're thrilled to have you here. You wrote a terrific book, and anybody uh, should be buying this book. It's not only informative, but highly entertaining. And uh, I imagine having uh, a beer with you would be a lot of fun. I uh, I think every everyone who hangs out with me some somehow needs to drink, so yes. <laughs> Seems to be a necessary component. So what are you doing day to day now? Uh, how involved are you still uh, with Square? And what are the other things that you're doing? So uh, Square is now called Block. We are, um, I'm still on the board of directors. As a matter of fact, we've got a meeting next week. Um, and I'm still super interested in what the com- company is doing and you know contributing where I can. But you know, we've got thousands and thousands of employees now. So my area has uh, has always been the starting of a company, not the running of the company. So um, my focus right now is in a couple of areas. Uh, I'm doing a project on um, personal privacy, which is my main focus. So this is a company called Invisibly and invisibly.com is our website. And it's an attempt to allow people to take control of how they're in how their information is bought and sold. And if you, I know this sounds esoteric, but basically the platforms are not respecting our best interests. And this is an attempt to stop that. Um, It doesn't work yet. I will tell you that it doesn't work, but we have a new product coming out this week that I think might work. And it's the first news browser in the English language that uh, has no paywalls uh, and gets you to the real articles uh, and allows you to control how you see the articles. And that's really important because um, if you let somebody else choose the news for you, uh, then your news feed is like a cattle feed. And I grew up in the Midwest where we have feedlots and we take take cows and do unspeakably terrible things to them, um, (laughs) you know, because we plan to eat them. And um, a lot of that's happening in news. So that's, that's my main focus. I'm also doing a little research in carbon sequestration um, with some uh, plant science. And then um, actually the thing that's most fun right now is I'm doing a basic chemistry on um, trying to build a, a biodegradable super polymer. Um, and that's really esoteric stuff. And again, it's not working yet, but if it does work, it'll be great for the planet. So clearly you have too much time on your hands. And you're spent sending around most of the time just watching ESPN. Well, yeah, you know, it turns out when you go from writing a book for three years to not writing a book, you end up with a massive amount of time back. And it took me three years to get that book finally polished up and published. Uh, but you're also an entrepreneur in the glass blowing area as well, aren't you? Oh, yeah. I've been a professional glass artist for, gosh, since the late 80s. Um, so it's a uh, it's a passion of mine. It's something I love doing. And right now in the studio, I'm working on uh, drinking glasses that are a little bit hard to use. So the the rim is a little. Um, it's they're not they're not spherical or they're they're, they're not cylindrical. Um, the the wind the the rim is wavy, and um, they're really kind of annoying, but also really cool. And I kind of like them. But so the idea isn't to reduce the amount of drinking you do by making it so hard to drink that it cuts back on the amount. So the thing is, I was drinking alone one day, uh, just unconsciously. And I mean, I guess I got to 
you know, I think full of pens here, but like I, I had a glass like this in my hands and, and I can drink out of something like this subconsciously. Like I don't even think about it because I've always drunk from, you know, sort of cylindrical spaces. Um, and then I thought, wow, wonder if I could make an object that was, that commanded a little more attention. In other words, a drinking glass that you couldn't totally ignore. Uh-huh. So I've been playing with these prototypes. Some of them were disasters, but now I've got it down to a part where it's just this glass that's, it sort of commands your attention, but doesn't totally overwhelm you. And and that's this area I've been playing with. But yeah, a lot of time in the studio lately. Is there something from the art of glass blowing that an entrepreneur can take away and use to enhance their chances of success? I think so. Um, so there are two things for me that are really helpful. One is just the fact that making a physical object um, is very different from making a virtual object. Uh, I can spend my day at the office and if I'm working on signing stuff or software or something like that, nothing physically changes. I have no tangible result. If you're doing something that makes an object, you can then evaluate that object. And glass is fantastic for that because the object is transparent and you can really see where you screwed up. Um, the, The second thing about glass that I find just mesmerizing, this is probably why I've been doing it for 30 years, is glass is sort of a metaphor for risk. So if you're trying to make a piece of glass, you need to get that piece very hot so that the glass softens up and you can change the shape. But the hotter you get it, the closer you get to the point where you can no longer maintain control and the piece collapses. And and walking that line of taking something that's really good and risking it to get something that's better is sort of a great mental exercise. Is one that I, I often think of when I'm in the glass studio as, you know, how far can I push this and how far should I push this? And then I go back to, you know, the world of intangibles and that those lessons come back. So I think it's a great activity and certainly a lot of fun. So uh, somebody asked, do you ha- have one of your glasses in front of you or near you? No, but I could go run into the other room. So if you, well, uh, we'll, if you, have, we'll get, if you we'll have send a, the if, pictures, I'll go get one, but it's like down the hall. Uh, well, we probably won't have time. Uh, for that, if it's not close by, but we'll we'll send people pictures because it's all on the internet. We they can see what you do. So let's get into your book. Why did you write this book, and what were you hoping readers got out of it? So I did not want to write a book. Um, I was trying to answer a personal question, which was how Square survived an attack by Amazon. And when Amazon attacks a startup, and we were a startup when they attacked us, the startup always dies. That is 100% true up until Square. And Square was the only company that beat Amazon while while we were still a startup. And it was sort of amazing to me that that happened. But after it did happen, I asked myself, well, why did it happen? What explains this phenomenon? And and not just we got lucky because, you know, there's always something. Yeah, okay, you got lucky. But like, what was the luck? What were the things that that went right? And so I got obsessed with this question and started studying other companies that had survived similar situations, not Amazon, but companies that when they were very, very small and you would expect a big competitor to just wipe them out, ended up surviving. And in in every case ended up like taking over that market. And I found a bunch of examples for this, um, mostly by studying history. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting, but you know, if you study history, you can fall prey to selection bias, which is to say you only choose the parts of history that support your thesis. So it's, it's a crap way of doing science. And since I was raised as a scientist, I thought, well, I need to find somebody who, who lived through it because all the examples that I'd studied were you know, long since dead. And I found Herb Kelleher. So Herb was the founder of Southwest Airlines. And I know we've got a lot of international listeners today, but let me tell you about air travel in the United States. Like in the 70s, it was only for rich people. Like if you wanted to fly, you had to be wealthy or have somebody else paying for it. So businessmen and rich people were the only people in the air. Um, Southwest Airlines was this great democratizing force in travel. And it changed the way the U.S. connected. And the guy behind it was an attorney. He didn't know anything about airlines. And he lived through tremendously vicious attacks from, from the government, from existing airlines, from you know, all sorts of directions and survived. And he built this innovation stack for the airline industry 
that was eerily similar to what Square built in payments. So I flew down to talk to Herb and I basically said, look, I've been researching this for two years just to answer my own question. And here's this theory. And I explained the innovation stack and I explained all the stuff that you know is in the book. And I said, Mr. Kelleher, is this right? Like you lived through it. And I just shut up for two hours and listened to him talk. And um, at the end of two hours, he, he was super excited. And he said, he said, Jim, how are you going to share this knowledge with the world? And I was like, oh, crap. I just got a homework assignment from one of my <laughs> idols. So that's how it became a book. Uh, Herb Kelleher, who, if you do not understand this guy, like, he is a force of nature. He is a, was, I mean, he died, unfortunately, before I got the book finished. But um, Herb was the reason I wrote the book. Um, he was a reason the book was originally a graphic novel. So my, my whole book was actually a cartoon in its first several drafts. And then I told Herb that I was doing it as a graphic novel and Herb, Herb hated it. He was like, that's a terrible idea. You're not taking this seriously enough. I was like, just thinking that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and so I, then I, I rewrote it. <laughs> and, and actually, I saved one of the chapters from the graphic novel because it's too good. Um, but if you go to if you go to jimmckelvey.com, you can download a free copy of chapter nine as as its cartoon self. Um, but yeah, that's how the book came to be. So, and we're going to dive into what you learned about this whole um, war with Amazon that you came out ahead of, and that they actually uh, sent you guys gifts, if I remember correctly. Uh, they, you know, like they, <laughs> yes. I thought that was really funny that they threw up the white flag and sent gifts. Um, why did you name the book Innovation Stack? And what's an innovation stack? Because what you described in the book wasn't what I was thinking, which is some kind of Intel chip configuration. Yeah. So it's it's a name that a publisher slaps on a book. My working title for the book was always First Steps Off a of Flat Earth, which is this idea that think of yourself as one of the early explorers who didn't really know if the earth was a sphere or if there was going to be some cliff that you'd fall over and then die. Right. And the spirit of that adventure was what I was trying to capture in the book, but it was too esoteric and the publisher hated it. Um, and so the book was about innovation. And so we ca called it an innovation stack and the innovation stacks is this important concept in the book, but I think there's actually a more important concept in the book. So the innovation stack, for those of you who don't want to read the book, uh, is this very messy conglomeration of how problems get solved the first time. But the most important part of that sentence is the first time, because if you're doing something for the first time in human history, then you can't copy. And one of the mistakes that I made for years or decades, honestly, was I failed to respect the difference between when I should be copying and when I should be inventing. And most of the time you wanna be copying. Most of the, your life you wanna spend finding other people who've solved the problem before you doing what they did. Like that's the best solution for, to, for almost every problem. But on the other side of the line is this really weird world that we never talk about. And the reason we never talk about it is because the English language doesn't even have a word for a business person who invents something new. Really? They don't. There's no word in English for that. There used to be. It turns out the original definition of entrepreneur meant, when, when Schumpeter was using the term 150 years ago, that term used to mean somebody in business who was doing something weird. But since then, it's just sort of become this word that means anyone who starts a business. So if I start a business, like I'll start an accounting firm. Okay. Well, there've been accounting firms for centuries. Starting an accounting firm would make you an entrepreneur today. But in Schumpeter's day, no, no, you would be a business person. If you started an accounting firm, you would be a business person. If you started, you know, a car company, unless it was the first car company, in which case you would be an entrepreneur. I, I wanted to know how you define entrepreneur compared to business person or shopkeeper, because my dad had a, a business in our small town. And it was just, I thought of him more as a shopkeeper because he'd never expanded beyond uh, that store. 
So what's your definition of an entrepreneur uh, compared to the term business person or shopkeeper? So my definition is someone who, for whatever weird reason, is unable to copy the solution that they need from the rest of the world. So I don't know what sort of shop your dad ran, but... A medical equipment store. Okay, cool. So um, he didn't invent the category of medical equipment stores. And he would probably go to a trade convention where other medical equipment dealers would go. And um, I, I'm going to guess uh, American Hospital Supply, which if you know your history, yeah. was a big deal uh, yeah. back then. Uh, American Hospital Supply was actually sort of the entrepreneur of that category because they did something that nobody else did at the time. This was back in the late 80s. They actually put the order entry terminals in the hospitals. And, be, and they, they did this because the handwriting of one of their customers was so bad, they couldn't read it. So they said, oh, well, just let's just put a terminal in their office. I'm getting way off track here, but um, they would be entrepreneurial because they were the first company to ever put order entry terminals in the client's hands. And, and when they did that, they changed the whole way um, hospitals ordered supplies and they became the dominant force in the business. So they would be sort of an entrepreneur um, and your father would be a business person making yeah. a good living, doing things good. Like it's, it's, it's not a negative to call somebody a business person. Yeah, sure. And it's actually not a positive to call somebody an entrepreneur because if you say, at least using Schumpeter's definition of entrepreneur, that you're an entrepreneur, there's an element of critique there. Like what's wrong with you? Like why are you not doing what everybody else does? Why are you trying something that probably won't work? Why are you risking your family's well-being being this crazy entrepreneur? Why are you trying to fly? Mankind is not supposed to fly. Get back in your bicycle shop where you can be a good business person. Yeah, uh and you're right about that. And my dad wasn't trying to be Wilbur Wright inventing the airplane. Uh, you talk about giving successful uh, successful business people rides to the airport as a way for you to learn. And you said you never learned what you wanted to. What would you mean about that? So this was when I was right out of college and I was so desperate. So there was no Internet back then. Like You couldn't just YouTube your way to uh, uh, to all this great information. And I would. Um, uh, I had this trick because I was working for a company that would put on events uh, at, at my, it was at my university and uh, we'd have speakers in and my way of getting one-on-one -on -one time with these very, very successful people was to give them a ride to the airport because the taxis in St. Louis are basically run by the mafia and uh, like getting into a taxi was a disaster. So they would always take my ride to the airport. And so I'd get, you know, 20 minutes, you know, especially if the traffic was bad uh, uh, a one-on-one -on -one time with these very famous, uh, people. And I would always ask them for advice because I had a company, actually I had a couple of companies and I was always, you know, struggling with stuff. And the advice was sort of universally terrible. And, and, and what I mean by that is they, they would give me good advice, but they would give me advice for a business person who was doing something that had a formula that was known. And the things that I was trying to do didn't have a known formula. And it turns out that there's a different set of physics if you don't know what you're doing. There's a different way of hiring. There's a different way of pricing. There's a different way of managing. Like all these things that I was trying to do where they were giving me advice, they were giving me advice from the world where there were known business models, there were experts. I mean, you could call McKinsey and have them come in and tell you what was wrong. Or if not, you could steal somebody from their, you know, from one of your competitors who would come in and fix your process. And so it was a disaster. And I, I would get all this advice and I take it, it wouldn't work. Um, and what I finally realized, like years later, was that I was asking the right people the wrong question. So, and did you get better at it yourself when people, young people drove you to the airport? Oh, well, uh, I just sort of finally clarified this in my own head when the book was published. I mean, up until the point where the book was published, I still didn't understand this differentiation. And I know it sounds obvious. I mean, I can explain it to all your re readers and save them, you know, time reading the book. Like, and it sounds so obvious when I say it that I can't believe I made this mistake for years and years. But literally, if you're doing something new, 
you probably can't do what works for everybody else who's copying. And you can take that fundamental insight and talk about any sort of subcategory of that. Like, um, like how do you, so this is one that uses math. If you have an innovation stack, if you've done something that is truly unique in the world, how do you price your product? And the answer is you should probably charge a lot less money than you could for very good mathematical reasons. And I won't put your audience to sleep by going through the math right now. But the point is, time and again, I saw this pattern of, wait a second, this is a weird situation and I should be doing something differently. So I'll, I'll give you an example that's, that's a, an analogy. We all like to travel. Some of us like to travel, most of us like to travel. I love it, yeah. Um, but being a tourist is a lot different than being an explorer, okay? So I'm gonna travel to Ireland next week and I'm gonna be a tourist, which means I'm gonna have a bag with me that's got a tiny amount of stuff and I'm gonna expect to sleep that night indoors in some hotel, okay? Now, if something goes wrong and they push me out of the plane with a parachute over some uncharted jungle and I've got my you know, electric toothbrush and a couple of nice pairs of pants in my bag, as opposed to you know, maybe a sat phone, a gun, uh, a knife, and some uh, chlorine tablets, uh, it's gonna be a different travel experience. So the entrepreneur is pushed out of the plane over uncharted territory and has to survive. The tourist has the map pretty much in hand before they go. And that different type of travel, it's like the different journeys in business. Like you don't wanna be pushed out of a plane too often in your life. And it's not something like you could be very, very successful your whole career and never do anything original. That's great. You can be really rich and never do anything original. That's great. It's not pleasant to be pushed out of the plane. But when it happens, or if it happens, or if you choose to jump out of the plane, which some of us do, will you know how to survive on the ground? Will you know how to, you know, keep yourself alive for the period of time that you need to until you can get some reinforcements? Uh, and by the way, I like jumping out of airplanes. It's fun. <laughs> so I'll have to come down and join you there sometime doing that. Please share the no, connection. No, I will not jump out of a plane. I'm, I do not jump out of planes. Ah, okay. Yeah. Um, please share the connection between the serenity prayer and solving problems and how that applied to Square. So the serenity prayer is what they teach you at most of the rehab programs. You know, give me, Lord, grant me the serenity to uh, uh, change the things I can change, accept the things I cannot, and to know the difference. And the trick is to know the difference. Um, so I've noticed that a lot of the very successful entrepreneurs that I've worked with have had some sort of journey through rehab. Uh, <laughs> It's this crazy uh, correlation. I, I'm talking about entrepreneurs now. I'm ta not talking about business people. I'm talking about people who go out and do things that have not been done. A lot of these people have, you know, have memorized 12 steps. Um, but the part about the serenity prayer that's most sort of impactful to me was this knowing the difference. Like, what can you change? What you can't change? And in, in, in my world, what can you copy and what shouldn't you copy? Or what, what can't you copy? Because I believe the copying is absolutely the best answer to almost every problem. Find somebody on YouTube, find somebody, find some expert, read some book, get some, you know, get some expert in to tell you what to do in this situation. That is almost, almost, almost always the best solution, but not always. And do you know when it's not the time to consult the expert? Do you know when you have to then switch to this other mode of behavior? And I never found anyone explaining that. I never found, like if, if I had had my book when I was 20, I would have been way, way, well, probably more successful, but certainly a lot happier. Because for years I was doing stuff that wasn't working and I couldn't understand why it was working. Now, some of that stuff should not have been working because that's the natural process of innovation. But some of the other stuff was just, I was just too dumb to know that I was using the wrong tool set. 
Hey, uh, you can waste a lot of time and money solving problems no one cares about. I should have, I have a, like a PhD in that. How do you know people want a problem solved or care if it gets solved? That's a fantastic question. And I always get that from thoughtful people. And um, there's not a good answer. Because if you're building something that's never been built, there's no way to focus test it. There's no way to, there's no way to prove in advance that it's going to work. And I hear this all the time. So, um, so when we started Square, Jack and I were really unsure if our product was gonna have any user besides me. So the whole product was built for me. I was a small merchant. I had this thing that I wanted that didn't exist and I was building this thing for me. Okay, but I'm kind of weird, right? And I wouldn't guess that my tastes are like everybody else's tastes. So we really literally did not know if there was any market. The same thing with Southwest Airlines. Okay, so let's take a crazy example. When Herb Kelleher and the team started Southwest Airlines, they actually had a government study proving, if you accept this, proving that people didn't want to fly on airplanes. <laughs> and that the only people who would be willing to fly on airplanes were rich folks or people with expense accounts. And that normal people, folks like you and me, didn't want to fly. This was a government study, like your tax dollars paid, you know, in the 70s for them to figure this out, right? Now we look at it in hindsight, well, that's insane. But at the time, the prevailing wisdom was people don't want to fly. Um, so I say, if you're building a product that's never been built before, you will never have the comfort of an answer to that question. And if you can answer that question, your product is derivative. If people can actually understand and answer that question honestly, that answer is worthless. Because until you show them something that they've never seen before, how they can answer your focus group question. Uh, we have a couple of questions from the audience and then we're gonna jump into uh, a question about your co-founder. Do you consider the computer science book you wrote in college for your computer science class, the first book you wrote? Uh, yeah, that was uh, the first two uh, books because I, I I wrote a textbook um, when I was a freshman, uh, and I was I was an economics major. I wasn't even a computer scientist at the time. Um, I wrote a book and it got picked up as the textbook for the class that I was taking, um, and that was because the textbooks of the time were so terrible that I just thought I would try to write a better one. It was it was a spike book, like <laughs> no, it really was. I was just pissed off. Um, and then the book was successful. So then the publisher asked me to write a second one. So the second one actually did pretty well. And then I had this weird reputation as somebody who knew computing, which I really didn't, but it gave me access to the computer uh, elite and I've sort of stayed there ever since. Um, but yeah, I think it was very important. Um, and look, here's the thing about writing textbooks and I've written three textbooks now. Uh, the innovation stack is not a textbook. It's a business thing. Yeah, it's, and you can tell that by reading the book, sure. It's actually like a, an exercise in sort of bad jokes and crazy analogies. Um, but the three, first three books I wrote were two textbooks on uh, computer science and one textbook on glass blowing. And those were textbooks and textbooks are easy to write because all you have to do is understand the topic and then be able to explain it in a very simplified manner. Um, the innovation stack was much harder to write because I wanted to entertain um, which is why I started with the graphic novel format. And the reason why I wanted to entertain was that every business book that I read has this terrible Faustian bargain, which is there's probably some nugget of information in here and it's buried under so much self-serving dense crap that I'm going to have to speed listen to this on 3X. And, and the business books are generally terrible. Even if they say something, it's great. Like, go reread. I, I won't knock some of my favorite business books here, but like reread them and try to stay awake. They're horrible. So I didn't want to write one of those. I refused to write one of those, which is why it took me three years to get a book out. Oh, it's funny because the next, the next question I'm asking from the audience is talking about books. What are the books on startup entrepreneurship that taught you the most? Startup. Um, so, uh, I mean, I thought Lean Startup was good, but I didn't read it until after I'd written the innovation stack. Um, 
so Jim Collins is a guy that uh, he and I are both on the speaker circuit, and this was 20 years ago. And he uh, uh, he was just writing Good to Great when I became sort of buddies with Jim, and he gave me an early copy of Good to Great. Um, that was a transformative book. I thought that was fantastic. Um, Clayton Christensen, if you can read it, is good. Um, it, some of it's been disproven, but a lot of, like he was responsible for a lot of the terminology that we use now. Um, so I love his stuff. Uh, and then that said, I don't, I don't read a lot of business books. I just, I, I, I try and, you know, I end up with welts on my forehead by passing out forward like this. You're killing me here. You're killing me because I'm reading these books every week. <laughs> I know it's tough, but like you, come on. What percentage of them are well written? What percentage of them are fun to read? Like, give me the. I'll go through a lot of books to pick the ones like yours that I think are great reads. Uh, well, so tell me, you, you should you should be answering the question. Don't ask me that question. <laughs> and by the way, I find... had to go on a one hundred percent diet. Like, uh -huh. I I refused to read any nonfiction for two and a half years while I was writing because I was so afraid that I would be copying other people's ideas and thinking that they were my own ideas that I went on a total information diet. It was really sort of terrible. Good to clear your brain. Did you find that your size and scale at Square helped you in competing against Amazon? Oh, you mean being small and insignificant? <laughs> <laughs> no, competing against Amazon, you want as much ammo as you can get. Yeah. Um, look, uh, Size and scale is relative. It, in, in comparison to any of the platforms, no company is big, right? So Square today is not big compared to Amazon. Square at the time was an infinitesimal compared to Amazon. Um, that wasn't really the, the critical thing. Um, the critical thing was that we were building an innovation stack and we're doing 14 things that Amazon didn't know we were doing. So they copied us, but what they did was they copied us superficially by looking at the stuff that they could see. Well, they could see the little reader, they could see our rates, they could see you know, how our software worked, but they couldn't see any of the stuff behind the scenes. And they didn't know what we were doing behind the scenes and they weren't able to copy that. And ultimately, I think that's what undid them because they, like I, like I was not working at Amazon at the time when they attacked us or at the time when they quit, but we have, we have traded a few employees since then. So I've gotten some insight into what Amazon was thinking and what they were doing. And actually one of the team members from Amazon came over and joined Square. So I have a pretty good idea now that what happened at Amazon was they copied what they could see, but they didn't copy everything. And that's what led to their failure. Interesting. And how long did that battle last for? About a year. Yeah, terrifying year. But just I, I, I think that because, you know, they're like, uh, you guys were like the uh, founding fathers and they were like the British Army. Yeah, it was that sort of asymmetric warfare. I mean, they, they had way more stuff to kill us than we had to compete with them. As a matter of fact, we couldn't even match them on price. The, the crazy thing about Amazon. So this is, this is the interesting thing. We beat Amazon with them undercutting our price 30% in this area that everyone considers a commodity, like payments, like why, why don't I just pay the least amount that I can, right? And we didn't even match them on price and we still won. So think about that. We were more expensive with a product that was didn't have the Amazon brand name. So you can't argue that we had a better brand because they're Amazon and we're some startup, you know, with yeah. two guys. And we still won. And I go through the math of why. And it's in interesting when you read the book about that. Um, another question from the audience. What are the three primary roles you recommend every startup hire first that want to pioneer an innovation-centric organization? Oh, um, so I would ask the writer of that question to see the bias baked into that question right? Read the question again. That was such a great question. And I'm going to really make fun of him or her. So what are the three primary roles you recommend every startup? Stop. Okay. Firm? We'll stop right there. We'll stop right there. Okay. It's a great question. If you're a business person, if you're copying, you've spent your whole life copying. If you, if you wrote that question, I can see the bias right there because you're saying, give me a bullet list. 
<laughs> Jim, please give me that damn bullet list that everyone wants. Do this, do this, do that. Three rolls. Screw you. There aren't three rolls. There's 40 rolls. You don't know how many rolls. If you're building something that has not been built yet, how many rolls do you need? How many people do we need? Who are those people going to be? You want me to tell you the answer to that? There is no answer. If you're doing something that has been answered before, go to the trade show, hire some people that work for your soon-to-be competitors, and get those guys to tell you what those three steps are. But if you're innovative, which is the second part of the question, I cut you off, and I know I'm busting yeah, on your yeah. side. Sorry. Yeah, but it's a good. great question. And it's a, this, is, this is the reason it's a great question is because we are so ingrained to think like copiers that even when the topic is innovation, when it's something that can't be copied, we still think like people who are copying. And the, the whole reason I wrote the darn book and I'm doing these podcasts and basically trying to get this message out is copying is not going to give us the future. Right, the future gets delivered by people who try new stuff and often fail. And we don't know who's on that list, but the people on that list are gonna be weirdos, okay? <laughs> They're gonna be people that for whatever reason have somehow become less comfortable with certainty or more comfortable with uncertainty. They're the sort of people who, when you hire them and you say, look, uh, welcome to the team, I can't honestly tell you what we're going to do. Here's our goal. Here's the, This is the thing we're trying to solve. I'll show you the problem. I don't know how we're going to get there or if we're going to get there. Do you still want to work on this team? Some people are not comfortable with all that ambiguity. Most, no, most of us aren't. Like, And by the way, I'm not preaching spend your whole life innovating. Okay? What I'm saying is, look, most of your life, you're going to be safely behind everybody else. There will be somebody in front of you who's figured it out. Find what they did, do what they did. But occasionally, a couple times in your life, you're going to find yourself with a problem that you care about that nobody's ever solved. And what do you do then? And as we saw in that last question, you are so conditioned because of your biology, because of your education because of your friends, because of your social society. Like you are so conditioned to only move when you are qualified, to only move when there is a sure path, to only move when somebody else has done it before you, that you will find you're hesitating. And when you hesitate, you're gonna hesitate for a good reason. It's a reason you've used since, since you were a kid. And the hesitation is, oh, I'm not qualified yet. I can't do that. I'm not qualified. Well, here's the answer. Nobody's qualified to do something the first time in humanity. Flat out. If you're Orville Wright, okay, you're the first guy who gets in an airplane and takes off from the ground. Was he a qualified pilot? Did he know the salts? Did he know stall speeds? Did he know VNA? Did he know uh, how to steer? Did he know how to land? Did he have any certification? You know, we're not even sure the guy was sober. <laughs> He was not qualified. And you may find yourself in a situation where you are absolutely not qualified to do the thing you want to do. And what I'm telling you is, great, nobody's qualified to do it the first time. And I don't want all of our talent sitting on the sidelines. And that's why I wrote this book. And that's why I spent all this time on it. Because when you see that moment, what are you going to do? And most people will disqualify themselves because, well, that's what they're used to doing. And my message to you is, look, there's a whole different world over here with a different set of rules, and it's going to feel uncomfortable, and it's not going to be fun, but you might want to do it anyway. Hey, uh, we're going to jump back to the questions in a second, but Jack Dorsey started out by working for you, and eventually he brought you back to work with him on Square. So. Yeah. What did you see in him that, and you saw something in him, he was like in high school, right? He was 15 years old when I hired Jack. Yeah. 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 So, what, what, and now he started two global brands. Oh, yeah. So Jack's, well, we called him Jack the Genius when he's 15, and I don't think he's gotten uh, dumber since then. So uh, <laughs> whatever the uh, 
next superlative is I'd use that in Jack's case. Look, Jack um, showed up when he was 15 years old. Um, he worked at a company that I still own and he was great. And I gave him so much responsibility that by the end of his second year, he was actually managing teams of people with, you know, jobs and mortgages. And like he was managing 30 year olds. Um, Jack and I had a good run. We stayed in touch. Um, he actually told me about the idea that would someday become Twitter years before it became Twitter. Uh, he started Twitter and then uh, they kicked him out. And uh, I won't get into that whole story, but for whatever reason, Jack reached out to me. Um, and I was living in St. Louis. He was in Silicon Valley. So I don't know why he reached out to me, but he said, hey, Jim, you want to come start a company? Another one. You want to do it? You want to do it again? Um, and I was like, yeah, man, let's do it. And what do you want to do? And he's like, I, I don't know. What do you want to do? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know. So that's how uh, Square started. And we settled on an idea that was a frustration of mine, which was how much I was getting ripped off as a small merchant. And I just wanted to fix that for myself. But it turns out a lot of other people wanted that solution as well. All right, so let's go back to the questions from the audience. In the end, isn't it about luck to a large extent? A lot of people had a good idea, they worked hard, but luck and timing decided whether they would be successful or not. Your thoughts on this? Absolutely. You luck this is luck. Yeah, I talk about this. As a matter of fact, I do a mathematical exercise about luck. Okay, and here's why you should never read another business book, um, is because there's a massive selection bias, right? So yes, yeah, Square was incredibly lucky. And the only reason I wrote the book, like the reason I, I, I only wrote the book after I saw this pattern, not just at Square, but at dozens of other companies. And every one of these companies had this weird pattern. And the pattern involved this thing called an innovation sack and involved a bunch of other stuff. And, and, and I was like, wait a second, it can't be luck if it's happened throughout history. It can't be luck if it's again and again and again happening. Now, that doesn't mean it's commonplace. OK, I might be talking about one out of a thousand firms, but with millions of firms being started every year, luck happens and, and, and also science happens. So hopefully I'm dealing with science, but here's the problem with luck in business. Look, if you're incredibly lucky, you will get incredibly rich and you will be deemed successful in society's eyes. And if you were working hard when you got lucky, what you will feel inside is, oh, all that hard work paid off. I was busting my ass and now I'm super successful. And you say, well, I must know something. Well, maybe you don't. Maybe you just got lucky, right? So unless you're willing to do the statistically rigorous exercise of sort of normalizing, and actually the, the examples that I used in the book were chosen specifically to exclude factors like luck and network effect and lock in like a lot of the like i didn't study any other tech companies because like look if you bought bitcoin two years ago congratulations your company's a success like i don't yeah. care how stupid you are i don't care how much you know uh like how many other complete faults you have it doesn't matter um but luck is really important uh the problem is you can't plan for it so we can only plan for the stuff that is sort of repeatable. And, and the, the stuff that I go up in the innovation stack, look, it wasn't a double blind scientific test, but it was, it was as good as I could do to prove the thesis that innovation, doing things new, have different physics. There's a different characteristic and you should, it, it, it might help you to know those things. That would be the main thing, it might help you to know. Another question from the audience. What did you do to preserve your sanity while you were pushing the envelope to explore what you didn't know? I struggle with returning to a safe place to be validated. So I'm not a therapist. Um, maybe that's why I'm so happy. Uh, <laughs> I Look, um, have a sense of humor. Uh, have some good friends. Uh, hang out with weirdos. Uh, that was my formula. I mean, I'm an artist. I hang out with people who, you know, sleep in their cars. Um, uh, I've slept in my car. <laughs> I've, you know, uh, yeah, friends help. I, but, but I mean, I'm, you don't want to hear personal advice from me. I would say this. Uh, 
look, the, the worst thing that's going to happen to you in a business failure is a business consequence. It's not, you're not going to die, you know? Um, so accept the fact that you might not be right, joke about it. And when you're not right, it's a great, like, like think of yourself as a comedian, right? If you think of yourself as a comedian, you're gonna get better material from your failures. Like look at a comedian sometimes. They're not sitting out, standing up there telling you how great their life is. They're telling you how terrible it was. Oh, let me tell you this. Boy, was this a mess. That's good comedy. Have a sense of humor. Oh uh, yeah. If I tell you all the stories about my dating life, then I could write a good <laughs> comedic book about that. Um, do you think the best way to prove a concept of your new technology, business, or application is to create a wait list and get through thousands, get thousands of signups like Dropbox before you start? So the line outside the door is secondary to the thing that's inside the door. So the first thing you do is you build the product. You build it, you build it, you build it. Now, marketing wait lists, especially if it goes viral, especially if it's something that easily scales. And I was with Drew when he was, you know, Drew was sort of starting Jock Rocks in San Francisco when, when, when we were starting Square and I hung out with him a few times. Um, I was at the Dropbox launch party. Like, you know, I was on the way, you know, it was cool. It's a good, it's a good marketing tool. Um, but it is primarily a market tool. Okay, and if you can create artificial scarcity, great, create artificial scarcity. Um, I'm doing that right now, like literally next week, uh, Invisibly is uh, dropping a product. It's an alpha version of a new uh, newsreader. And if you guys want to do it, you go to invisibly.com and you sign up and I'm going to tell you to wait. Why? Well, first of all, because the product's sort of crap right now, right? I don't want to release it to everyone because it's got a lot of sharp edges, but it's also good marketing. And I'd say it's probably better marketing than a, than a, than a strategy. So uh, next question from the audience, you kind of uh, dived into this already, um, but this person wants to know is, how does a startup survive against Amazon? Uh, and by the way, they ordered your book. So we've sold a book here. And I sold it on Amazon, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the irony <laughs> is that you paid Bezos to, yeah. to for, like he's making a cut. He's making more than me. I lose money on this thing. If you take all the money I spent on doing this, but I'm way underground. Like he's the only one profiting. <laughs> How does a startup compete with Amazon? Um, depends. You, you better be doing something that's completely unique if you want to survive. If you're doing something that they can easily replicate, they will replicate it. And you, but what they'll do before they do that is they'll try to buy you out. So take the money. <laughs> um, but if you're not willing to take the money, you want to go toe-to-toe with a competitor like Amazon, realize that it's not toe-to-toe. It's like toe-to-head. You won't even, you won't even, it's so asymmetric. Um, and you better, uh, you better learn the lessons, lessons of the companies that have, that have won that battle in the past. And there aren't, a lot of examples, but if you mine history, you'll find them. Uh, approaching VCs, can you add, this is another question from the audience. Approaching VCs, can you elaborate on getting investors? How did you craft your investment pitch if you had any? Oh, yeah. So we uh, we had what I was told by probably the top VC at the top, the guy, the, the managing partner, the best venture capital firm in Silicon Valley. Um, told us we gave the best pitch you'd ever seen. And I heard that actually several times from other fairly prominent, but not super awesome VCs. Um, we did a couple of things in the pitch. And I actually go through the pitch in the book specifically, uh, but there were, there were a couple of things that we did that I think were totally different. Um, one is we came in with a completely working product. Now, by completely working, I don't mean completely legal. Like our product was breaking. I think the number was 17 banking rules or regulations, or in some cases, laws. But the damn thing would pull money off your credit card and put it in my bank account. Yes, off your card into my personal bank. That's that's how our demo started. We started by taking everyone's money. <laughs> that's a good attention getter. So that was, that was thing one. Um, the second thing we did 
was we openly discussed all the ways we were likely to fail. And, and actually, you know what, I'm gonna probably not even gonna mention the third thing because I wanna spend the time on, and, and, on, on that second thing. Honestly, divulge what's wrong with your company, everything. And we, one of the things we divulged was that we could have a platform like Amazon or Apple attack us and we'd get killed. And actually one of the guys who was an investor in the later round was actually on the board of Amazon. And he told us during the pitch, because I remember he took, you know, they were all like, yeah, come with us and we'll be able to protect you. We're big and strong in a VC and blah, blah, blah. And he was like, I was on the board of Amazon and I was the guy that came up with Amazon Prime and Jeff is my personal friend and they won't attack you if you're taking our money. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, not on the first round, but later we actually took his money and nope, he didn't protect us. But, <laughs> but here's the thing, it changes the tenor of the pitch. Most VC pitches are this sort of attack and defend model. You're attacking and they're defending. And you're lying and they're trying to bust you on the lies. There's all this crap. Um, if you're just open about all the things that are wrong with your company, uh, the VCs will treat you much differently. And they treated us as, as sort of a partner. And in a lot of cases, they would come to us and they'd say, you know, we could actually help you with that. You know, I don't know about the rest of this stuff, but we could actually help here. Or, or you would have an honest discussion about may, maybe why they're not the right investor. You know, uh, I did this in one of my companies last week. I had an investor who was in it uh, and he thought that the company was guaranteed to succeed. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like if it succeeds, it's going to be hundred to one, but there's a 50, 50 chance that's going to go to zero. And he was like, well, I didn't know this. I just, I just bought him out. I just bought out his entire position because I don't want anyone in my camp who isn't up for the ride that they signed up for, you know? So um, you want to match those things and, and honesty, like, I know I say this and everyone's like, well, I'm honest. Uh, not if you're like the last 50 pitches I sat through, you know, very few entrepreneurs do that. When you critique uh, the VCs that you think are worth, you know, what's the criteria you should use as an entrepreneur when evaluating VCs who want to make an investment in you? What, what do you think is the most important thing uh, before you take their money? Well, uh, it's the capabilities that they bring. Most, like, look, look, they're all going to bring money. They will all say that they can bring contacts, which you may not need. Uh, they will all say they will help you, which they may or may not do. Um, and then in very rare cases, there's a validity that comes from their investment. So my current effort, invisibly, is highly, highly speculative. Okay, we've been working on it for five years. It still doesn't work, okay? It's micropayments based. Micropayments have never worked. Everyone's had the idea for 25 years. Nobody's ever made it work. So what are the odds of me being able to make it work? Yeah, I don't know, you know, less than half. But... Um, if it does work, it'll be significant. But what I needed when I had an investor was I needed an investor who was smarter than everybody else. Okay. So there are only two people that I knew of in the world who, whose money I could take that would validate what I was doing, or at least validate it enough to get all the naysayers to shut up and maybe allow me to hire a couple of good people. So um, I went with Peter Thiel. Now, Peter, he's a very forceful person, but like he's also called a lot of stuff right, you know. He's called stuff right that you might not like him. You might not like Trump. You might not like what he's done. You might not like Facebook. Like you might not like a lot of stuff that Peter's done. Okay. But he's been right. And by taking Peter's money, I basically said to the rest of the world, look, uh, I know what we're doing sounds crazy and I know it's never worked, but here's a really smart guy who's put his personal funds into this thing that might not work. So maybe you ought to just, Shut up and listen. Um, but that's that's weird. Like you don't normally need that brand. I needed that brand. Um, look, most VCs are uh, they're they're very similar. They they have a formula. If you fit their formula, they love you. If you don't fit their formula, uh, another question from the audience. What tools do you find most uh, support you in uncertainty? Are there any trends in the true entrepreneurs that you have met that haven't been beaten down and needed rehab? Humility is probably the most undervalued thing. And you think it'd be boldness, 
okay? But I think it's humility. And um, so we talked earlier about uh, how I tried to write a graphic novel and how uh, Herb Kelleher, who was an idol of mine, talked me out of it. <clears throat> and I think he, he was right for a bunch of reasons, but one of the reasons was that the graphic novel as a format is the superhero format. Who, who's in the comic book? Is, it, is that person like you or me? No, no, it's somebody who has superpowers. It's somebody who's, you know, bullets bounce off this person or they've, they can, they've got x-ray vision or, or at the very least they're like Batman and like super rich and have the best cool stuff in the world. Like, you know, like even if it's not genetically altered DNA, you're talking about superpowers. And, and I can look at a Batman comic or any comic and say, well, I'm not that guy, right? I can't fly. I don't have super speed or whatever their superpower is. And so I was trying to write this, this book and I was using that as a format. And, and what I was doing, I think subconsciously was separating the protagonist from the rest of us. And I was saying, oh, you're, you know, read my book and get a good laugh. But at the end of the day, you're going to not see yourself as the potential entrepreneur. And, and so I totally undid that scaffolding. And I wrote a book for every man because what I found in my research, starting with myself, because I'm nothing special. Um, I have no superpowers. I'm not, I don't even, I can't even focus. I suck in many ways. Um, but most of the other people were just normal folks too. They were normal folks, but they found themselves in these abnormal situations, you know, almost like war. Okay, but almost, th these were difficult, difficult situations. And what these people had, you know, tenacity, of course, they kept going, of course. Um, but humility was this wonderful thing that I found. And humility is, it's this thing that allows you to quickly learn from your environment. Because if you wake up and you say, I'm not the smartest guy, I'm not the strongest guy, and I cry often at inappropriate times, you know, like whatever your sort of list is, or maybe, maybe you've been to rehab, maybe... You know, maybe you got, maybe you've been out of prison. Like maybe you got a friend or relative in prison. Like I, I do. Mm -hmm. just, just saying. Um, so we have a few minutes left. will help you learn. We have a few minutes left. So let's see if we can get a few more questions in. Uh, what's the biggest failure you experienced in your career and what did you learn from it? Biggest failures. Um, well, probably the one I'm living through right now. I mean, it seems it's the failure du jour. Like there's always some failure, right? When Amazon was attacking us, it was Square. Oh God, and Amazon just attacked Square. Well, it turns out that one worked out all right. Um, here's the thing about failure. Um, I was trained as an engineer. I ended up switching my major from economics to engineering um, when I was still a freshman and went through a course of study where you were expected to make things. And the thing about making things is you very quickly get this objective feedback as to did your thing work or did it not work, okay? And the engineer spends all of his or her time on the thing that doesn't work, right? If it works, you hand it over to the marketing department. It's ready to sell, right? So my career is a constant continual stream of failure. And I'm not complaining about that because that's what I want. Like I will always work on stuff that's not working. Like all the stuff that I'm doing right now, the climate work that I'm doing right now involves a bunch of uh, uh, plant science that doesn't work right now. Okay. Uh, the superabsorbent polymer that I'm trying to work on, which is, you know, basically experimental chemistry. Like it should work, but it doesn't yet. Like everything I'm doing is failing. It Once it succeeds, Get me out of the picture. So I think if you can if you can study objective subjects where there's a clear this works or it doesn't, you'll end up becoming more comfortable in that failure state. And that failure state is where innovation happens. Jim, it's been a great hour. We've run out of time. And I love your thoughtful answers. And everybody who gets this book is really going to enjoy your book. And I enjoyed your sense of humor. So I think that they will as well. I hope so. I'm sorry. There was one offensive joke in there that the publisher didn't catch. And 
Yeah, sorry about that. But <laughs> well, tell them. maybe they have maybe to read the book to find it. <laughs> There's one well, in there. That's like, wow. <laughs> well, everybody, thank you so much. Uh, our next program is this Friday, our normal uh, day of the week. And we have Jonathan Brill, a futurist, uh, who wrote a book called Rogue Waves. And it's a really fascinating book. Jim, best of luck to you, and we will stay in touch, and hopefully you'll do another book. Thank you, Mark. Take care. Bye, everybody. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.